Welcome back to Drafting the Past, a podcast about the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and for this episode, I was lucky enough to speak with a historian and writer I have long admired, Dr. Catherine McNair. Thanks for having me. Catherine's first book, Taming Manhattan, Environmental Battles in the Antebellum City, first came out in 2014, and it is one of my favorite environmental histories. So I was more than a little excited to learn about her new book out this year, Mischievous Creatures, The Forgotten Sisters Who Transformed Early American Science. I couldn't pass up the chance to talk with Catherine about how the book emerged out of a different book project, the techniques she uses for bringing place so vividly to the page, and the writing process that results in prose that is such a pleasure to read. Plus, this book has one of the best stories of serendipitous archival discovery I have ever heard. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Catherine McNair. I really started to think of myself as a writer in grad school, and much of that is thanks to John Demos, who is a professor at Yale, where I was at grad school, and he taught a narrative history class. Um, that I really was glad that I, I mean, like in retrospect, I'm so happy that I took that course. It seemed so separate from the rest of the courses because it wasn't historical content based. Um, it was more just like great writing that he really liked and shared with the class and some that was pushing at the edges of what, you know, historians at that moment would think of as history. And so you kind of like felt your way through like figuring out what would good history writing mean. And it was, it was corresponding with a time where, I mean, which just continues where, you know, historians are really thinking about how can we reach a broader audience? Why aren't historians the ones who are getting in the bestseller list? Why is it mostly political commentators or journalists who get to write the, the really most powerful, far reaching history books? Why can't history professors or people trained with doctorates do that too? And so it was kind of an interesting intersection of that. Like, how can you write a compelling book that will reach past just the academy or just the 12 people who are really interested in your micro topic um, to kind of hit it out of the park in a way? I just enjoyed the reading in that class as well as the writing. And then I've just kind of carried that with me ever since that course. And then you you published a first book that was based on your dissertation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I published Taming Manhattan in 2014, and that was based on my dissertation. I graduated in 2012, so it was a quick turnaround after that. So it's actually very similar to the, the dissertation itself. I really wrote that dissertation with an eye for it being a book, not to be just for the audience of my committee, but to kind of just have a draft of the book. And the job market at that time was pretty rough. And so getting a a book contract early on was very helpful to sort of push ahead my own career too. Before we come back to all of that, let's talk sort of just about the practical stuff. So when and where do you like to do your writing? I like to write at home in my home office, um, primarily because I have natural light here. And for the, the first nine years of my job at, at Portland State, I did not have a window in my office. <laughs> I now have a window and that's much better. But for the longest time, I didn't have a window. And that meant I kept my door open so that I could get some natural light from the hallway or like ambient light coming in, which meant that I was constantly interrupted by students and colleagues and any kind of noise coming from the general history department. So I didn't get much writing done there. I, <laughs> I, I would write emails or have meetings or do whatever, but teaching related stuff, but I couldn't get writing done in any serious way. So I mostly write here in my home office. Editing though, I'll do anywhere. 
I don't mind noisiness when I'm editing. I can be in a coffee shop or in a park. Lately, I've been at a park while one of my kids has an after-school program. And so I'm kind of nearby and I just sit on a bench and work as long as it's not raining, which in Portland <laughs> is a very few number of days. <laughs> and sit with a draft and it's kind of nice to have paper and not a lot of distraction from a computer screen at that time. Do you have a writing routine? I'd say that I fit in writing wherever I can. At the end of a day, if I look back at my day, you know, it's all about balancing between teaching and service work at the university and sitting on committees and whatever fires that need to be fought in my job. And so I fit in writing wherever I can, but it's always something that I would put on a back burner because if there's somebody like a student in need or a faculty member who needs something, I'll always prioritize that sort of immediate deadline or that immediate need. So one thing I do is, it sounds almost like you, like it probably is obvious I have small children because it's like a, it's a sticker reward chart almost. Um, I keep like <laughs> a calendar to the side of my desk and it's just a plain calendar. And every time I spend some time writing in a day, whether it's a paragraph or two pages or 10 pages, whatever, I mean, 10 pages, that'd be really ambitious. But whatever, whatever I write, I, I put a little sticker on that day. And so I can look back and just be like, Hey, I did a good job this month. It ends up kind of being a visual to-do list or whatever that really helps me to prioritize myself because it's something I love doing is writing. Otherwise I'd be prioritizing everybody else instead. Are there tools that you use to manage your writing or to organize your sources? Well, my writing is very simplified. Um, I use Microsoft Word. I keep databases for my sources. So I have this project, I use FileMaker, and I designed the database myself in terms of what fields I needed and keywords. I have keywords for each document, and I transcribe every single document that I have. So primarily, that's because of the sources I'm using. And I'm looking at 19th century letters and in script, and it can't be plugged through OCR to give anything that's that's legible. And so that's a major reason why I'm just like processing it this way and, and writing out everyone. But it's it's also a way for me to think about the sources in a very slow way, like to read it in a very methodical and slow manner, because I otherwise might just like miss some fact or some little sentence that was actually really crucial to a story. So if I'm going slowly through it, it's a good way for me to process it. I once had a little bit of money to hire research assistants and I had them transcribe articles. And then I came to regret it immediately because I was like, actually, this feels like busy work, but it's actually really crucial to my, the way I process and think about it. So my latest, my, my, the database for my new book is, I don't know, it has maybe like a thousand entries, like something huge and enormous and unwieldy. I tie it back to the initial like photograph from the, from the archives that I took of the letter or whatever, um, or the PDF. So that I could always look back and find and see where my transcriptions went wrong, or if I got a got a punctuation mark at the wrong place or something, which was very helpful when I was editing the book and th- you know found a quote that seemed a little off and wasn't sure if it was just nineteenth century quirky grammar or if it was just my miswriting something. So it's good to have the both both of those. That's so interesting. I talked to so many writers, and it I really have learned that for a lot of people, convenience can really kill the creative process that like those things that seem sort of just like a slog turn out to be essential. Oh yeah. The devil's in the details, right? Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's where you find the best stories. Um, And some of my people that I, or characters in my books, they have horrible handwriting. And so it's a huge (laughs) amount of work to kind of make sense of what they're writing about. Like Dorothea Dix, she is, you know, a major reformer in the 19th century. And she's also friends with my, and like a, a kind of a, 
scientist in her own right. She collects a lot of specimens while she's traveling around the country, but she's writing on stagecoaches and her handwriting is horrible and, and unreadable. And it'll take me so long to read through these letters and try to make sense of it. And some of my poor friends have like gotten text messages or like, what do you think this word is? <laughs> what can, you, can you decipher what this says? But it's, it's, yeah, it's really good, a good process to kind of work through what they're working through. How do you go then from that process, transcription and research to writing? Yeah. So my grad school advisor is Donnie Farragher and his advice was stop when you think you have 60% of the research done. And this has been like, like my lodestar, like I, this is I, cause I, whenever you have about 60% of the research done, you can probably tell like a lot of the story from just that amount. But you also then come to realize as you start writing that you have like 90% of the research done. There's not 40% left to go. There's really just like 10, maybe even 5% left to go. And I can then be really fine tuned in what I go back to find in the archives to fill out the rest of the story. So that, that's really the moment where I, I switch. And sometimes I'll write one chapter far in advance of the, the, maybe the other chapters aren't ready. I don't have, you know, 60% or 90% of those to go, but I'll have one chapter kind of in a hearty way, like the, the enough sources to go with that. And I'll write that one chapter and then I'll go back and do more research or more transcription until I can get another chapter into. So then what does revision look like for you? I revise as I go. I know that there are those who write the entire draft and then they go back, but I will write, let's say I write like two paragraphs one day and then I'll always write the topic sentence for the next paragraph before I stop for the day, just so I can kind of know where I plan to start and not like starting having to really catch up. I guess I can just sort of get to that right away. But as I sit down all the next day, I'll read through those two paragraphs and revise them in detail and then get on to the next one. So I kind of build up my momentum and remember where I was. And so the beginnings of my chapters will be <laughs> the most uh, edited as um, uh, over time because I've been editing them every single day that I, I sit down with a chapter. Do you go back then and do like a big picture revision once you have multiple chapters? Oh, 100%. Yes. And I can't even tell you how many revisions this book has, my uh, Mischievous Creatures has been through because it's not only my revisions, which were like super intense, but then I'd, I'd also workshop it. And then I had so many different editors at the press who were also had their hands in it too. So it probably, I don't know, each of these chapters went through like 20 different major revisions after having been fully written too. So I'd like to hear a little bit about the publishing side of your book. So your first book, Taming Manhattan, which was also wonderful, was published with Harvard University Press, a university press, obviously. And then this one is published with Basic Books, which is a trade press. In both books, as you already mentioned, like your writing is beautiful. It was you know, important to you to write artfully. How is it different to write these two books? Yeah, I think in terms of writing it from my beginning process, I would say the only difference is maybe I had more confidence in the second book because I had, <laughs> had gone through the whole experience with the first already. So that made it easier. But in terms of editing, I think that's where it's been the difference in the production of it. Um, so there's just so much more thought and effort given to editing at basic books just because it's a trade press and there's more people who work there and they have more funds to put towards it. So I had my main editor, he gave a huge overview kind of editing suggestions about the book and kind of like some macro suggestions. Then I went and back and revised about based on that. And then I had a line editor who went through 
and gave like amazing line edits, like on the sentence level throughout. And some of that was still macro too, like suggesting that I change an entire introduction to a chapter or doing things like that. So there's still some big changes that happen at the line editing stage. And then there was the copy editor who went through and did more of the grammar stuff, but also kind of finessing the meaning of sentences too, when there were questions about how things turned out. And then there was the production manager who I thought was just more of like a project manager at first who would be like directing <laughs> other people. But she also read through the book and made suggestions and two proofreaders. And so there was just wow. so many people who were involved in this and the number of hands that were like, wait, do you really mean this? Is this really how it's supposed to be? So it's, I, I'm so thankful for all of that effort. And sometimes people caught me when I was like, you know, I was spinning in circles about how to describe something. They're like, I don't know that you're meaning what you're saying here. So I'm, I'm really thankful for how many people were involved, which makes me think back. Like I had a, you know, a great editor at Harvard Press too, but a lot of it was really just me messing with my language in that one. It's a different world. And I, I really appreciate that kind of hands on teamwork about uh, making sense of a book and how to how to edit it. I think, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think for your first book, you didn't have an agent and you, you do have one for this one now. Did that also impact how the experience proceeded? Yes. Oh, and I, I adore my agent, Wendy Strothman. She's fantastic and like a powerhouse. She was mostly involved with the um, book proposal and the language around that was in my book proposal. But goodness, was she so great with the suggestions that she gave me when I would have a blind spot. She was just like heavy, heavy suggestions, line edits that I wish I had gotten that level of work on my my dissertation way back when. Um, like it would have been really helpful. I, she, I would like to have her as a life coach as well as a, as an ed, as an agent. But it, yeah, it's fantastic working with her. I'm also curious because in the introduction to mischievous creatures, you talk a little bit about how you came to this story, which is something I always love when historians do. But as a result, we learned that this wasn't actually the story you set out to tell. You were researching an entirely different topic and sort of stumbled across this one. How did that change unfold? And I'm especially curious about what that looked like from a publication perspective. Had you already pitched a project at that point or were you just kind of searching for the next one? Yeah, so my yeah, my first book is an urban environmental history. And I saw, as I wrote my, my tenure narrative, as I was going up for tenure, I proposed to my department and university that I was going to continue on with urban environmental history, that this is my path. And I was planning to write a book about the history of a tree that's much hated, the tree of heaven. It's everywhere, but it has come in and out of love, uh, or Americans have come in and out of love with it at times. It's a tree that grows in Brooklyn, and it's kind of an emblem for immigrants, but it's also an invasive species now. And there's a lot of like anti-Chinese racism tied to it. And I had gotten to about two years into that book project. As I sat down at the New York Historical Society, I happened to be there to attend a meeting and I had a day to work in the archives. And the, the archivist said to me, you know, you should look at the papers of William Darlington. He's a botanist. We have some of his materials here. People rarely use this, these papers. And he wrote about this tree in a book. So he, there might be something in his collection. And so I looked. I sat down with the finding aid and there were 250 letters from this woman named Elizabeth Morris there. You know, and the, the, the finding aid was just a list of all the, his correspondence. Like it, there wasn't a lot of content. I wasn't seeing anything directly relevant to the tree, but I was just like, who's this Elizabeth Morris? Like anybody would. That, she was probably the most 
the person in his collections that where there were the most letters. And so I just Googled her. I had my laptop there and nothing came up. There was like, there was just nothing. I was able to make sense that her sister was an entomologist, but there was no Wikipedia page for Elizabeth Morris. There is now. <laughs> Luckily. And the Wikipedia page for Margareta Morris was pretty, pretty anemic. So I just marked that down. I had to go catch my flight. And so I just like wrote her name in my book and was like, who is this? And then left. The next month I happened to be in Boston and Cambridge to do some, to give a talk. And I, I spent a day at Harvard's Museum of Zoological, the, the, whatever, the, the, their library um, there, looking at the papers of an entomologist who had written about drop worms that infested urban trees, but not the tree of heaven. So again, like I'm still like, <laughs> I'm researching this tree. And I came across these letters from Margareta Morris that stopped me in my tracks. Where I was like, wait a minute, this is the same, the same set of sisters. And so it was a completely coincidental, like I was stumbling upon them. And her letters were like, Oh, they're so passionate. They were like, I have panted for the sympathy of someone who can, re- you know, uh, respect my or understand my, my love of entomology. Something like this kind of like, despite me being a woman and that despite me not having access to the same education, I was like, Oh, I, I left that, that library that night and went to have dinner with a friend who lives in Boston. And I was like, you know, I think I have to change my project. Like these, these women, they're so interesting. And I, I you know, whatever I'm learning about them, I'm just getting drawn in. And so, and I'm also just confused about why I've never heard of them. Cause I, I had found that Margareta Morris was like the first woman elected to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, along with the astronomer, Brian Mitchell. And she was a, a really a pathbreaker. There weren't many women who were working in entomology in the same way as her at the same time. And she was in correspondence with Charles Darwin and, Asa Gray and like her sister, Elizabeth Morris, the botanist who I uh, first um, fell upon. She was a major supplier of specimens to Harvard's library. And I'm just so confused about why I hadn't heard of them. Anyway, so that's what charged me with this. Like I changed projects pretty quickly. When I had started working with Wendy Strothman, I had proposed a couple. She had reached out to me initially. And so at that point, I didn't really have a project. And so I proposed a few ideas. And she was like, that sounds good. Come back to me when they're, you know, more formed. Um, and I had said something about the tree and she said, that's, that, yeah, that has promise. Um, come back to me. But then I came across this and after I started digging more and I realized that there was enough because these women were erased. I wasn't sure how much material there really was out there or what, you know, if I could actually form a story or if this was an article instead of a book. But once I had enough and I wrote a, a initial chapter and kind of started to, map out a book proposal, I sent that to her. And she then whipped my book proposal into shape and we went through so many drafts. And eventually as I got the the chapter a little bit more refined, she started sending it out and, and moving it around. But I hadn't had a book proposal for the tree book. That was still very formative at that point. So it was an okay transition. I didn't have to like <laughs> break out of any contracts or anything dramatic like that. To take a closer look at how the book that Catherine ended up writing came to life, I've asked her to read an excerpt from the beginning of Chapter 2. Here's Dr. Catherine McNair reading from her new book, Mischievous Creatures. This chapter is titled, In a Tangled Wilderness Without a Guide. Hiking past the paper mill on narrow, uneven paths woven with the roots of chestnut, oak, and hickory trees, Margareta and Elizabeth watched their step as they reached the Wissahickon Creek. 
The young women brought picnics that they unwrapped as they found space to sit on rocks shaded by the dense canopy overhead. Even on the sunniest days, they were hidden in dappled light as they sang songs, sketched landscapes, and scribbled lines of poetry, meandering down paths for miles to collect treasures like ladies' slipper orchids and regal moths to put in their tin basculum cases and pillboxes in order to study them back home. The Wissahickon, just a mile from their home in Germantown, was one of Margareta and Elizabeth's favorite places to go in search of specimens and adventures. Before the actress Fanny Kemble alerted tourists to the beautiful forest so close to Philadelphia, before Edgar Allan Poe waxed on about floating down the lazy brook, Margareta and Elizabeth were venturing out into the forest, climbing boulders and hiking for miles alongside tutors, neighbors, siblings, friends, and lovers. These adventures in the woods were social events as much as they were scientific explorations. Margareta and Elizabeth benefited from a network of relatives and neighbors who connected the girls to mentors and taught them to read their environment. If their garden was a space where they could tinker and experiment, the forest around the Wissahickon Creek set the stage for the exploration alongside their ever-growing community of scientists and friends. Young women who joined them to watch meteor showers, the mentors who taught them to closely observe and draw fuchsia, shield ferns, and damselflies, and the neighbors who shared their books and invited the young women on hikes with visiting scientists all helped Margareta and Elizabeth navigate their youth. So this is just one example of many of the scenes in the book that you really bring to life through careful detail. What does it take to write a scene like this? Yeah, so there's a lot <laughs> that goes into this. In other scenes where I, I'm looking at a specific event on a day, I have spent more than a day going through microfilm trying to figure out the weather, <laughs> the weather along around that time. Like I, I think I spent an entire Friday in the like um, a dark space in the Portland State Library, kind of figuring out the the raininess and the snowiness of like a March day in um, <laughs> in 1851. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot. So in this case, I knew that this whole chapter is really centered on the Wissahickon Creek, and a lot of the book is honestly because it was it's such an important space for the the sisters and the work that they were doing. But this this chapter in uh, very specifically is very much about that space. So in some ways, it was tricky because I, I had I had planned to visit the Wissahickon Creek in the spring of 2020. And um, as you know, everything shut down. And so I could go. And there's you can walk the Wissahickon Creek on Google um, Maps. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same thing. That was, uh, you know, far, like not yet. You can't do the same thing. So I, you know, I made sure in 2022, 20, no, that, that's um, 2021. I went back to Philadelphia, 2022, maybe, and actually hiked it for a day and spent a lot of time there. But as an environmental historian, I know that what I'm experiencing in 2022 is not what they're experiencing in 1822. It's a completely different forest. Things have grown. Things have fallen down. There's in new introductions, different birds, everything like that. So I also used a lot of material maps from the time period. There are some garden enthusiasts who were centered in Germantown, and they cataloged every fern and every orchid that existed in, in that space in the late 19th and early 20th century. So I had that the sisters themselves painted a lot of things from the Wissahickon Creek, and I have those paintings. They wrote poems about their experience in the Wissahickon. And I am not 
been a person who analyzes poems in my life. Like I, I don't have that background, but gosh, that I had that poems were a major source for this time period in their youth. And so figuring out how their poems aligned with what their experiences were in this forest. And their sisters also painted and drew other parts of the forest too. So I, I kind of like used a lot of material from across my own experience and across like the historical sources that I had to try to build this out. Some of it is so extensive that I couldn't like all fit it all into a footnote, but it was, <laughs> it was there. <laughs> so one other thing that you mentioned, I think in the introduction that I found so interesting is that on the one hand, because of COVID, you ended up having sources digitized and being able to research things that way. But on the other hand, this amazing thing happened to you that came about just from talking to someone and serendipity. Would you kind of tell that story about how you came to the source? Yeah. So all of my research is on the East Coast. This is a Philadelphia story and all of the scientists were East Coast based. Like all the archives are from Massachusetts down to Delaware. And I did not expect anything to be on the West Coast at all. But I happened to be in the, you know, maybe 2021, I was on the playground at my kids' school. There was less after school care because of the pandemic. And so I was there while she was on the playground playing with friends. And I was just chatting with parents and found one of the dads was talking about his insurance business. And I was talking about my book project. And he was asking me the names of the scientists as everybody's would. And that was that. And then he came back two months later and said, I might be related to the scientists that you're, <laughs> you're researching. And we, I, I sent him the genealogy and he was like, yeah, that's my family. And my uncle lives an hour away and has one of their books in his attic. And that was <laughs> mind blowing. Like, I still can't wrap my mind around the luck of this, that one of my kids' close friends is a descendant of the people I've been writing about for six years. And the fact that a source, like actually a very crucial source, like the book that they had in their attic was a book of poetry. It was a friendship album. So, um, but it was mostly poetry that Margareta Morris had written or collected from friends. And it was her paintings. And a lot of the paintings are all over the book on the cover and throughout the book. Some of the poems are in the book too. And I just, I still can't, is the, the magic of this. Uh, I've, I was speaking to a historian at a conference about it and he was like, you have to write an essay about this. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what the moral is. It's like, don't, don't keep your cards too close to your chest. Like just <laughs> talk like, to people. <laughs> yeah. Talk to random folks. Like just bring up your project wherever you go. And then maybe something will come out of an attic and you'll, you never know. It's, it's the, I imagine, especially because these women have been written out of history. I imagined I'd come across things after the book came out that somebody would come, come out of, you know, and say like, Oh, I have their, their these letters that you didn't get a chance to see or some, something like that. And I had actually done a lot of work on ancestry.com trying to find descendants. I found out that this relative who has a, the book in his attic hates ancestry.com. And so <laughs> I'd never been in, involved with that. Um, so that's how I missed him there. But I, it's that magical moment, like the, the woo woo, like Portland person in me is like, they're haunting me. They're making my path a little easier. <laughs> oh, I love that. Which we could all use. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so despite that, and the fact that this book, of course, is carefully sourced, the sources fade into the background as a reader, you know, unless you're a historian who <laughs> knows how much it must go into this, it doesn't interrupt the way that you read it. Was that a challenge? And what did it take to develop the confidence to be able to write that way? 
Yeah, I think age. Is <laughs> I don't know. Um, I yeah, it's hard. It is hard to not cite everything, and sometimes I'd have readers or not 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 cite, but not like prioritize featuring like yes, and this gardener from Germantown talked about the ferns, and let's talk about the ferns. I had a reader, uh, some readers who would go through and be like, wait, how do you know exactly who's living in this house in 1800? I'm like, okay, I can mention the census then. Like, or I can, I can bring the source into the, the paragraph. I don't have to hide it all or subsume it all. But, you know, to some extent, I just wanted to really set a scene. And that was important here. In this case, this opening is not set at a certain, like a very specific date. And so I wasn't very precise about exactly what the foliage would have been like in September of 1821 or something. Instead, I was kind of using a more amorphous time because it's kind of showing a, a larger scale of their, their experiences across their childhood and young adulthood. But yeah, it's hard to subsume that or it's hard to feel confident doing that. And also you have this like fear in your head of like, who is that that cynical historian who's going to read this and be like, she made it all up. It doesn't exist. <laughs> How, you know? And I'll be like, no, I, I spent so much time in a microfilm room. <laughs> oh, that imaginary cynical historian in all of our heads is such a problem. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so place, of course, plays a huge role in your work. And I know that part of that is because you are an environmental historian How do you make sure that readers also get a strong sense of setting? Yeah. So these kinds of passages are are really how I'm trying to do that. Or like their house was torn down, which is part of the story in general about the erasure of these women. All I have are photographs of their house. And then I found fire insurance descriptions of like when they got fire insurance policies. And so they, that the fire insurance agent walked through the house and described every room, not in like the, the detail that I would want, but <laughs> I know how many pine boards were on their floors or whatever, where the furnace was. I tried as best I could to make sense of that. I sat down, my father-in-law was a contractor and, and so he sat down with me to like go through the fire insurance descriptions and like try to work through exactly what they're talking about in terms of the door jams so I could get a more of a sense of it. Some of that made it in, but yeah, I was trying to just decipher things as best I could. And also same thing with like the plants and insects that they were working with. I had to learn a lot about their subjects in order to describe them properly and to understand their like the the flies habitat or exactly where things were. I even derailed family vacations <laughs> for the sake of this. My I, both my husband and my family live on the East Coast, and we were driving between two their two homes, and uh, I was like, we have to stop in Northern Pennsylvania because this is where Margareta spent a lot of time looking at water bugs. I want to find generally where her the house that her friend's house was where they stayed so I get a sense of the location and sort of hike around that is now like a nature conservancy space and so I, I was able to go through and like hike a little bit while my kids were in the car complaining and you know, <laughs> they just wanted to move along and get back to get back to grandma and grandpa's house um, but, but there I was like trying to avoid the ticks and, and make my way through to see if I, so I can better describe a scene which is maybe two sentences but Thanks to my family for dealing with me for that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Something I'm always curious about, especially in a book like this, where you have sort of woven together the, in this case, dual biography of these sisters, along with the more immediate world they were part of, but then also the context of much larger, both U.S. history, but the history of science at this time, too. How do you weave that together in the writing process? Do you have a strategy? Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, it's sometimes 
because it, it is like I want to I want to be telling the story of them as humans who lived a life, right? And they're not just like symbols of this one moment in history, the history of science. I wanted to be very just telling about the story of their lives, but also telling us a, a larger story about the history of science and power in both history and science and how that affects what we know. And then also they're living through major events like the Civil War. And so like there, there are things that I want to kind of zooming in and zooming out and kind of giving context. In some places, the lack of sources on their life ended up encouraging me to zoom out more. So I don't have a ton on their childhood. I also don't have, gosh, the one source I would love is letters between them because they lived together their whole life. They never wrote to each other. So it was like, that was like heartbreaking to not have those, that sort of sourcing. But in terms of scale, I would go in and out. So the, with their childhood, for instance, I don't know exactly how they were educated. I have little snippets of information about their education, but I could go and, and zoom out and talk about what was science education for girls like in the early 19th century? How would that differ from what we would now call elementary school education to like later when the kids are teenagers, what would that look like? What would it look like when they're young adults, when they would otherwise be in college? And so I can kind of talk about their personal experience from those snippets, but then it's an invitation to also talk more broadly to fill in the larger landscape and fit them into this larger pattern too. In the acknowledgments, you mentioned several writing groups and also just writing, writing friendships. How do those connections impact your writing? Oh my goodness. I love writing groups. I <laughs> live for writing groups. And so, I mean, part of this I could say is longstanding. I have a, a writing group from grad school that are my dearest friends who are kind of, they're all like aunts to my kids. And these women we've been meeting, we used to meet in grad school and like have a potluck once a month and exchange a few pages and talk about everyone's writing. Oh, and it was, it's like my fondest memory of grad school. And we continue, we all at kind of similar points in our careers and went on sabbatical right before the pandemic hit. And so we kicked up our writing group again on Zoom. Right before, it's like, so we got familiar with Zoom before Zoom was everywhere. Um, and so we're scattered across the, the world, really, but we're able to kind of find time that worked across our time zones and just continue to exchange writing about our second books, which was such a delight. A delight for friendship and a delight for writing because they're all they're they work across the fields. They're in you know American studies and history and 20th century and the earliest or you know in time period religious history and environmental and social and cultural and every and urban and so it's everyone's working in different things and we're not necessarily an expert in anybody else's uh, very specific field but we can talk about writing that way and it's it's a delight. Then I also formed, because it's a, I'm, the trade press, I don't have the peer reviews this time. So I was just very aggressive about asking people to read. And I'm so thankful for everyone who read with me. I, I, I created this writing group with my friends, Andrew Robichaud and Bart Elmore, and they're both environmental historians. So I was able to get that kind of feedback, which was really valuable. And then I just also cornered people and was like, would you read this? Would you be willing to read? I have a friend who's a fiction writer and I just like handed her a couple chapters and she willingly read and gave me feedback. And like Anne Fabian, who's this, you know, professor emerita from Rutgers is just like, oh, I, I should dedicate this whole book to her. She's, she read the entire thing. She was giving me like fiction book recommendations from early on. And she was, she made so many great 
she's like the, the fairy godmother for this book. She she would she read everything in such detail. So like even to the point where she's like, Are you giving Charles Darwin too hard of a time? And I'd like ended up, you know, <laughs> amending how I was I was getting a little rough with him and his sexism. And she's like, But he's like such a nice guy too. So you know, like we I ended up like amending things or softening my blows a little bit. I'm curious, I, I did not pose this question ahead of time, so forgive me, but you know, I saw that you teach an environmental history, or no, maybe not environmental history, but a public history lab at Portland State that looks so cool. I was so jealous of the existence <laughs> of this. But I was wondering if that has impacted the way you think about your writing. Yeah, I, you know, I like, I would say that my writing has also impacted the way I think about public history, too, because I've I like to, to speak to a broader audience. I want to make sure that my writing is accessible to someone who, you know, who likes fiction about women in science as much as they would like history about women in science. And so in the same way, um, writing environmental history or having my students create history and kind of forms that can be consumed in a park sign or a podcast uh, or, you know, things like that, that it's a different genre of writing or a different kind of writing to write something that's going to be spoken or to write something that fits on, a, a, you know, the hundred words that you can fit on a sign that's mostly image heavy. I think it all has fed into itself in that kind of broad audience sort of work. I want to turn to some of my questions about inspiration now. So first, I'd love to know what the most influential piece of writing advice is that you've ever received. I would say, so it's kind of life advice as well as writing advice. I'm someone who gets tangled up in a lot of projects at once and gets overwhelmed by it all. And my mom used to always say, one thing at a time, just (laughs) one thing at a time. And that's also echoed in Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird book, which I adore that book. And I assign it to my students, you know, in so many ways, because like she has this this chapter that's about bad first drafts and how you just like have to have a, t- a, a terrible first draft. And that is such a relief for students to hear about that. But the bird by bird part of just like, if you're stuck and you can't write, just write what fits into, just write about one bird or write about the, what fits into a one by one picture frame, like what's right in front of your face. And then you'll get something on the page and then it, you have an, another, you know, a, you can put your foot down into the next step and like figure out what comes next. And I love that advice. I think it's just good soul soothing advice for me generally. And then also helpful if I ever feel stuck with a blank page in front of me. Who do you like to look to for inspiration? Are there people that you read or maybe even watch or listen to? Yeah. So I don't read history for fun. I have to get away <laughs> from it. So I mean, I love there are so many historians that I find so inspirational. And they're often the people who are kind of mischievously, I'll use that word, um, pushing back at the way we learn to read in grad school is to skip around to like to read to speed read or read really efficiently. So you can get through a book really quickly and read the introduction and read the conclusion and then skip around a little bit to get the point. I love the historians who write in ways that that force you to not do that, who force you to go slow and make it a page turner. So like Aaron Sachs's books and Bathsheba Demuth and or even Anna Singh's book about the mushroom at the end of the world. I love that book for so many reasons. The fact that the, the chapters are structured like a mushroom, like, like mushrooms grow. It's just, there's so many things that I adore about that book on multiple levels, existential levels even. And then in terms of, there's so many great fiction writers 
who write about women in science. And I didn't actually, just for fear of, of getting too close at times, I didn't, I, I read them very early on in my project and I set them aside because I didn't want to get too close to that. But Elizabeth Gilbert's book, The Signature of All Things, is about a woman who's so similar to Elizabeth Morris that it's almost eerie. Like I thought that Elizabeth Gilbert had written about, but I like to think about fiction in this way because the, especially this, in these historical fiction moments, there are, it's almost a, like a reflection on the lack of sources that exist because they're able to fill it in with their imagination in ways that historians can't. And like, if we're sticking to the sources, we cannot do that. We can't know what these women are thinking about when they're trying or, or just marginalized sciences too. Um, like what the book Washington Black is so good. You can't know what these people are thinking or how they're moving through the world. And so it's kind of fun to have some, to breed someone who has that freedom to fill in the blanks where the sources don't exist. But also, oh, the, one of my favorite writer of all time right now is Ross Gay, the poet. Probably if you go back in the transcript for this podcast, you'll hear that I've said the word delight like probably a thousand times. And that's a total influence of his book of delights and, and more recently his book of more delights. I'm just so influenced by that. I re- I've read them so many times and he's a gardener as well as a poet and a professor and his prose are amazing. And it's not just about delight. He's also looking at power in terms of race and class and everything like that, but also still finding the wonder of the world while mixed in and something to find joy in while still facing those, the darker sides of humanity at the same time. And his writing, it's just so good. And it's also good. It's a good audiobook. I highly recommend it because he, he reads them both. And yeah, it's really good. Well, before I let you go, I am curious if there's anything you're working on now that you're up for talking about. I realize that's a very unfair question when you have a book coming out. And I'm also curious if you'll come back to the Tree of Heaven book because I, I, I still want to read it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, I do think I might come back to the Tree of Heaven in some form. I'm in conversations with a, a botanist who knows the science of the trees a lot more than I do. So he can speak to the you know, what's going on with the trees and it's their interactions and the way that they've been classified as invasive. While I can talk about the, the racism and the cultural history of these trees and everything that's gone on in terms of the historic history of the trees. So that's kind of, I almost, I'm kind of excited about the, the collaboration with that, which I, I've never worked in that kind of way for a collaboration. So there's a lot of potential there, but it's still early days. So who knows what will come of it. And otherwise, like at this moment, you know, when my last book came out and I had some interviews about it, I was really like nervous about the fact that I didn't have an answer for what the next book was. I had been so immersed in that book that I I hadn't figured out my next book. I know some historians have like three books in advance, like they know what they're doing like so far in advance. This time I'm trying, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more confident in my desire to let, like, let the field lay fallow. Like just, I want to read a lot. I want to just explore and who knows, maybe I'll fall across something along the way. That's like, like a, like someone unknown in the archives or something like that. And just, and fall across a new story that I want to tell. That's a great answer. I love that. If you could give advice to a graduate student who's in the midst of writing their dissertation, not that I know any Uh, (laughs) what would you tell them? I would say, you know, write as if it's a book. Write for your smart friend who is, you know, gleefully going to read it, who might not be familiar with the topic, but is going to be interested. And um, write for that kind of audience rather than writing out of fear for um, who you're, you know, for your committee or for that mean historian in your head who's going to question what you're doing. Um, instead, 
write the book you want to write. And then, and it's just kind of walk confidently forward with that. You know, take, take the criticism that people give you, that your committee gives you, but write the book you want to write. Dr. Catherine McNard, thank you so much for joining me on Drafting the Past. This has been a delight. Thank you. It has been a delight. (laughs) Thank you again to Dr. Catherine McNair for joining me for what was truly a delightful conversation about writing. To learn more about her books, as well as the other things we mentioned in this conversation, visit draftingthepast.com. And thanks to you for listening to the podcast, sharing it with your friends and social networks, and for buying books by the authors featured on the show. You're helping to spread the word that friends don't let friends write boring history. 